Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 29 through 42. Brian has been a Christian for nearly 20 years, but he has struggled throughout that time with pornography. He'll go weeks, sometimes months without falling into temptation, but sooner or later, it seems inevitable that he stumbles. Usually it's when the stress of work builds up or the conflict in his marriage intensifies, and it's been this way for so long that he's convinced it will never change. It's always going to be this way. Kate's been a Christian since she was a little child, but anxiety and depression have had a grip on her for several years. At her worst moments, the the weight of worry that weighs on her is paralyzing. And almost anything, it seems, these days can set it off. Her children, her husband, her extended family, issues with friends. She's tried reciting Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but that usually just makes her feel worse because she knows she shouldn't feel this way, but she does, so she thinks there's something wrong with her. And it's been that way for so long that she's hopeless. Tom has a short fuse. Friends and coworkers wouldn't know because his wife and kids bear the brunt of it. His angry outbursts at home, and he, he's ashamed and he's hopeless, and his wife is weary and hopeless. Are there besetting sins in your life that make you feel hopeless? Are there overwhelming and unabating circumstances that make you feel despair? In my experience as a pastor, no matter what the issue is that somebody is dealing with, could be anxiety or eating disorders or addictions or marriage problems, you name it, the problem is always intensified. It's always exacerbated by despair. That thought, not only do I have this issue that I'm dealing with, but I've had it so long and nothing has changed, it's always going to be this way. I'm never going to change. Hopelessness is that soul-sucking feeling you get when you are convinced life will always be this way, the awful way that it is right now. We've been in the book of Exodus for a while, but this morning we come to the Exodus, the Exodus. And if you've ever felt hopeless or if you know somebody who is in despair right now, you need to know the story of the Exodus because Exodus is the paradigm for God's redemption and God's deliverance and God's salvation. It's a true story, really happened to particular people in history, but it reveals to all people, in all places, in all times, to you today, that the Lord is mighty to save. That's what you need to be convinced of when you lose hope. So I want to invite you if you're physically able to stand with me out of our reverence for God and his word as I read Exodus 12, 29 through 42. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne 
to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Let's pray. Father, would you reveal yourself to us today through this word that we might know you as our God the God of the Exodus, the God of glorious wonders, mighty acts, the God of deliverance and redemption. May we know you as that God. Would you bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching and the receiving and the believing of your word that we might be people who have great hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Through the events of the Exodus recorded here in Exodus 12 for your edification, God reveals himself to the world as the God who is mighty to save. He is the God of deliverance and rescue. He is the God of inexhaustible resources and infinite reservoirs of grace. He's the God of promises made and promises kept. And he is the God of hope. The message of Exodus 12, 29 through 42 is this. Helpless people in hopeless circumstances can take heart because God is mighty to save. Nothing is hopeless to the God of the Exodus. No one is hopeless for the God of the Exodus. That, that's the point of this text, and it is meant to inform, to define, and to shape your view of God. It's, it's meant by God to give you hope in Him. So if you're enslaved to sin, if you're drowning in unbearable circumstances, if you are at a dead end relationally, vocationally, 
emotionally, if you're full of regret about past decisions that have landed you in the mess you're in now, the consequences of your actions, if you've seen no way forward, no, no way out, God revealed himself in the Exodus so that you might know him and hope in him today. Specifically, God reveals three aspects of his saving work here that I want to show you. You can take heart because God deals with sin, God frees his people, and God keeps his word. Three simple truths about God and how he delivers. Take heart first because God deals with sin. The very first thing we see in Exodus is that deliverance begins with judgment. When God delivers, God deals justly with sin. Verse 29 begins, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The horror of the first two verses here is impossible for us to adequately portray or capture or imagine. The themes are death and darkness. The tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son, it took place in the black of night. The word midnight or night is repeated in the first couple verses. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn. Pharaoh rose up in the night. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night. And, And the text stresses how ubiquitous death was that night. It was everywhere. No one escaped from the prison to the palace. As verse 29 says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Nobody was exempt from this judgment. Just imagine the weeping and the wailing and the distress and the sobbing and the moaning. Verse 30 repeats the point, there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house, and that word can mean household. Every family was touched by this. There was not a household where someone was not dead. What an awful night. The text doesn't give us details about how the firstborn died, but it does tell us that Pharaoh and all the Egyptians rose up in the night. It says in verse 31, he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night. So there was a commotion. This was not like they all went to bed and they woke up in the morning to find that the firstborn had all peacefully died in their sleep. Whatever happened, they were all awake for it. And verse 29 is clear that this was God's doing. The Lord, the Lord struck down all the firstborn. On that night that God would deliver his people from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. 400 years from agonizing oppression of this ruthless tyrant. He began that night with an act of judgment. That's what the 10th plague was. Death is the penalty for sin. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God warned Adam and Eve what would happen if they disobeyed God. In the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12, Paul explains, death is in the world because of sin, and all people die because all people sin. In fact, on that night, the night of the Exodus, death was in every household. Even the Israelite households, 
because there was sin in every household. Either an unblemished lamb had been slaughtered and its blood spread on the doorpost, or the Lord struck down the firstborn in that home. But either way, death was in every home. Deal with sin. When God delivers, he always deals with sin because sin is our greatest problem. That's what has to be dealt with if there's going to be any deliverance at all. If there's no judgment on sin, then there's no deliverance from sin. And here's why that's good news for you. Because your sin is always your greatest problem as well. When you sin, you feel guilty. When others sin against you, how often do you respond sinfully to that? In sinful bitterness and malice and anger. Even when we endure suffering and afflictions that are in and of themselves not sinful, illnesses and other trying circumstances, we make things worse when we respond sinfully to those circumstances, don't we? So if there's going to be any deliverance, any progress, any change, any freedom in your life, God has to deal with sin. That means on the one hand, God will deal with those who have sinned against you. That's a great comfort to those who have suffered at the hands of others. All those who have wronged you will answer to God. But it also means that God has made a way. God himself has provided a way to condemn your sin without destroying you. He struck down his own firstborn son for the guilt of your sin so that you could be delivered while God maintains his justice. The death of the firstborn sons of the wicked Egyptians, we can comprehend. Even that, for many, raises questions of God's fairness. But remember Exodus chapter 1? Remember when Pharaoh made that decree to kill all of the baby boys in Israel and the midwives wouldn't cooperate? Pharaoh turned to the Egyptians and said, when you see a Hebrew boy, just throw him in the Nile. So this is a nation of people who just took babies and threw them in the Nile to be drowned and eaten by crocodiles. We can kind of wrap our heads around the, the justice of that, God striking down the firstborn sons of Egypt. But who could have ever imagined that the way God would save the world would be by striking down his only begotten son, the firstborn of all creation, so that he might deal justly with your sin and deliver you? Firstborn son. That's why there's hope. That's why there's hope for us. Take heart. There's hope because if sin is our greatest problem and God has made provision for our sin in his firstborn son, then there's hope for us. Second, take heart because God frees his people. Immediately after striking down the firstborn of Egypt and passing over the households of Israel, God set his people free from their captivity. Verse 36 describes the incredible events of that night as the work of God when it states, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Again, this is the work of God. The Lord gave them favor. Normally, if you're trying to escape, not speaking from experience, but basically, I think you have two options. You can try to sneak out or fight your way out, right? Israel did neither. They were set free. They were commanded to leave by Pharaoh. They were begged to leave by the Egyptians. Exodus 12, 31, 32, then he, Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, 
Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Up, go, go, be gone. He's still giving commands. Don't know if he gets it yet that he's not in control. But this is a remarkable turn of events. The rest of the Egyptians also, verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. In haste. The text emphasizes by repetition the immediacy of the exodus. That's what that phrase means, on that very day. It all just happened suddenly in a moment. came about. Verse 39 says, they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. One commentator paraphrases that. There was no time to dally. It just happened suddenly. They left in such a hurry that their bread had no time to rise. They had no time to pack or make provisions for their journey, which is something ordinarily you would do. We tend to forget about that because we can just set out and we've got GPS to get us there. and We've got fast food when we arrive. If you're going to travel anywhere, you have to make plans and bring provisions. Back in Genesis 45, when Joseph sent his brothers back to the land of Canaan, he sent wagons full of provisions for them for that journey. And that was just 11 guys. We're talking about 600,000 men plus women and children, so estimates are like 2 million people, and nobody packed anything. I bet the moms were a little worried. (laughs) Somebody's got to think about the food. The exodus was sudden and total reversal in a moment. Israel's departure from Egypt glorifies God and demonstrates his ability to set his people free, to deliver, to redeem. How else do you account for the fact that they were not just allowed to go, but begged to leave and commanded to leave? Not only that, but the Egyptians sent them away with riches. You catch that in verses 35 and 36? The people of Israel had already done what Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. I just, I read that, I tried to put myself in their shoes, like really just knock on their doors and ask? (laughs) got any gold? And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Oh yeah, we do actually. Here you go. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. They they didn't slink out of Egypt like fugitives or runaway slaves. They marched out of Egypt with the spoils of war. Which is why verse 41 And elsewhere in Exodus, God frequently refers to his people as the hosts of the Lord, the armies of the Lord. And what had they done to defeat the mighty nation of Egypt? Nothing. Nothing at all. But their God fought for them. And they were merely the undeserving recipients of his kindness and his mercy and his favor, and his steadfast love. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then you also are the object of God's favor. And that's why there's hope for you. You can see it here, and you can see it everywhere in Scripture that God loves cliffhangers. I've said that before. God loves eucatastrophes. I've used that word before because I love that word. Catastrophe literally means a sudden turn. And we use catastrophe to refer to a a sudden destruction, sudden 
suffering. Catastrophe is something that happens suddenly. So J.R.R. Tolkien coined this word, eucatastrophe. He added the prefix E-U, which is the Greek word that means good. A sudden turn for good. That just happened almost out of nowhere, right when you were on the very brink of total loss and ruin. In the Hebrew text, verse 29 actually begins with this little phrase that's left out of many English translations for some reason. The, the King James has it. It starts, and it came to pass, or the NASB renders it, now it came about. My favorite is the commentator Victor Hamilton, who translates it like this. The whole scene begins. It happened. It happened. At midnight, the Lord struck down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. It happened. After 400 years, it happened. After Pharaoh had endured nine relentless plagues from God and still stubbornly refused to let them go, suddenly it happened. Probably right when the Hebrews, if they hadn't already lost hope, were about to lose hope. It happened. It happened urgently. It happened with great haste. It happened in a single night. God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. Which means when you are tempted to look at your circumstances, your chronic problems in your life and think hopeless thoughts like, it will never change. It will always be this way. Remember that your God is the God of the Exodus. It happened. We often do the math something like this. We look at how long the problem has persisted or how long it took to make the mess that we're in. We look at how it keeps going from bad to worse and we think if, it, if it's been going on that long, if it took this long, then any kind of restoration, any kind of change would have to take at least that long to get out of it or longer. That fails to account for the power of God's redeeming grace. And the princess bride, Miracle Max, says, with all dead, well, with all dead, there's only one thing you can do. Go through his clothes and look for loose change. But God raises those who are all dead in a moment and gives life which means it goes from as bad as it can get to life in an instant. That's the grace of God. No matter how impossible and overwhelming your sin or your circumstances are, change is possible because God is the God who sets people free. And, and lest you think, well, that might be true for others. I've seen that happen in others, but that has not happened for me. Don't miss this detail in verse 38. I think it's so easy to overlook. There's this comment that says, a, a mixed multitude also went up with them. A mixed multitude. That means not just Israelites left Egypt on that night. Foreigners, probably even Egyptians, left Egypt with Israel on that night. There was a mixed multitude who had heard God's warnings over the course of these 10 plagues, we know back in earlier plagues that there were some Egyptians in Pharaoh's own court who heard Moses and they believed. So they went and they got their livestock out to avoid the hail and the destruction. There were others who heard and believed. They responded in faith to God's word. They, 
Who knows, did did they spread blood over the doorposts of their houses that night or take shelter in the homes of their Hebrew neighbors? They somehow survived, attached themselves to these people and their God, which is an incredible encouragement to us that God's favor has never been based on anything in us that earns his attention or earns his approval. It's not ethnicity, it's not status, it's not your goodness. On the night of the Exodus and all throughout history, God has always made a distinction between those who belong to him and those who don't, between the objects of his favor and the objects of his wrath, but that distinction is not based on you. It's based on his mercy and his grace. So take heart because everyone who trusts in Jesus will be saved. Everyone. And that means you. Trust that. Believe that. That's for you. Finally, take heart because God keeps his word. Verse 42 concludes the night of the Exodus with these words. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. A night of watching. The root of that word means to guard, to keep, to observe. On the night of the Exodus, God kept watch all night, all night long to guard and protect his people as they left Egypt. He was actively watching over his people, personally accomplishing their deliverance. And God's personal vigilance, God's own personal attentiveness to his people is A tremendous source of hope and comfort. It's the theme of Psalm 121 that celebrates this by saying, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you, that's the same root as watching in Exodus 12, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He is vigilant. He is attentive. He is watchful. We just think about our own limitations, how desperately we need sleep. You ever had that where you're, just, you're driving in the night, fighting sleep? It's like life or death, so you'd think you'd be wide awake and alert, and you just can't fight it anymore. You have to stop. We have limitations. God never sleeps on the job. He is never inattentive to you and the problems and challenges and issues that you're facing. Psalm 121 goes on, the Lord is your keeper, same root as watching. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Where does the psalmist get that? Exodus 12. It was a night of watching by the Lord who never sleeps. He will keep you. He is wide awake and watching over you for your good. And what that means is that God is actively, personally involved to accomplish his word. This whole narrative is just packed with references and allusions to earlier promises and warnings from God. So that when you read through, we finally get to this point and it begins, it happened. The exodus happened. Everything in here is just a reference back to other things that God has previously foretold or promised so that when you read it, you would know God did this just as he said he would do. 
the 10th plague, the, the death of the firstborn, that was foretold back in chapter 11. Actually, before Moses ever returned to Egypt, back in Exodus 4, God had told him, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The death of every firstborn, from Pharaoh's son down to the son of the slave girl, that was foretold in chapter 11. In chapter 11, it was also foretold there would be a great cry that night. God told Moses that the Egyptians would bow down to him, think about the reversal that entails, and beg them to leave. And all of that came true. God told Moses that when Pharaoh finally relented, he would not just let them go. God said, I'm going to make it happen so that he drives you out. He said this in chapter 6, verse 1, and chapter 11, verse 1. Twice he told Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. You can just imagine Moses going, but how? How is that going to happen? God promised that the Hebrews would plunder the Egyptians. He told that to Moses at the burning bush in chapter 3. The first mention of it was all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 to Abraham. Hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God had even told Abraham that night, your descendants are going to be enslaved for 400 years. All of these details in this text matter because they are the fulfillment of God's promises. And the point is this. God's promises are not merely predictions about the future. They're not just forecasts about the future. God's promises to you are his personal guarantee that he will personally accomplish these things for you. It's a huge difference between you know, the weatherman forecasting the future, but not, he, he's not bringing it about. He's not making it so. He's just telling you what he thinks is going to happen. When God makes promises, he's saying, this is what I myself am going to do. And then he watches over his word to do it. He watches to make sure it happens exactly as he says. He actively fulfills his promises. He brings them to pass. He accomplishes his word. In Jeremiah chapter 1, God gives the prophet Jeremiah a vision the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Hebrew word for almond sounds like the Hebrew word for watching. I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. When you trust the promises of God, you are trusting God to watch over and keep his own word. That means you're, you're trusting God to actively be working, not just that he's far off and a long time ago he said some things about things that are going to happen in the far off distant future and it's all very far off and disconnected to you. No, he is actively involved in performing his word because it guarantees the work of God. So, so if you want to see God act in your life, listen to his word, trust it, and watch for him to fulfill that. Take heart because he's keeping watch over you and over his word for your good. So is there hope? Is there hope for people like Brian and Kate and Tom, even though they've been hopeless for years? Is there hope for you and whatever it is that you're facing today? 
There is, because the God of the Exodus has not changed. All that he was then, he is today for you. Helpless people in hopeless circumstances can take heart because God is mighty to save. And through his firstborn son, Jesus Christ, he has atoned for all your sin. He has made it possible for you to be set free in Christ from the power of sin. He raises you to new life. He delivers you and he personally acts to fulfill all of his promises for your good. That's your hope if you are trusting in Christ Jesus today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word and for every precious and very great promise you have made to us. What a hope to know that you are watching over your word to perform it. You're watching over us to keep us and protect us. Thank you that you are the God of deliverance, the God of redemption, the God of rescue, the God of sudden turns for good. I pray for those here this morning who have been in that pit of despair for a while now and grown accustomed to it and convinced of those unbelieving thoughts. It will always be this way. It will never change. Would you show yourself graciously to them and make us people of great hope because we know you. God, would you give us opportunities in this coming week to share that hope with those we interact with who don't yet know you, those around us who are in despair, and those who are still living in the, the death and the bondage of sin. Make us messengers of this hope because of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.